Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Сегодня вступает Привет, в силу это Навальный. В Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. Украина The move came as Vladimir Putin's Russia continued to surge an estimated 100,000 troops near Russia's border with Ukraine and as Moscow steadily expanded its military footprint in Belarus. The additional deployments of Russian forces to Belarus means that Moscow can now attack Ukraine from Russia in the east and southeast, from the annexed Crimean Peninsula in the south, and from Belarus in the north. Meanwhile, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is in Geneva for talks with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov in a last-ditch effort to stop a Russian invasion, but with Moscow's demand that NATO pledge not to enlarge eastward pretty much a non-starter with Western powers, the talks are unlikely to produce any results. So is war on the horizon, and what will that mean? Stick around. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from historic Mount Vernon, Virginia, on land that was once owned by George Washington, where he is hanging out with his two dogs, Ivan the Koji and Finn the Collins is military analyst and former U.S. Defense Department official Michael Kaufman, director of the Russia Studies Program at the CNA Corporation and a fellow at the Kennan Institute. Welcome back to The Vertical, Michael. It's good to see you again. It's good to see Ivan and Finn. Glad we got a nice photo of them to share on social media. Yeah, thanks for having me back on your podcast. Yeah, I was definitely the part of the fest. I don't think I was really, I don't think I was that particular of an official, but But those were good years at National Defense University. National, yeah, well, National Defense University is a Defense Department official. Michael, <laughs> Michael, let's start with the Russian deployments this week to Belarus, because these things got my attention. I wrote my weekly column about them for the Atlantic Council. Um, they're very ominous indeed. Russia already has troops in Belarus, of course. And as you've pointed out in the past, the two countries are holding frequent military exercises, and the constant troop rotations effectively means a permanent Russian troop presence in Belarus. But... Is, how do you view the announcement of these, these these military exercises that are, oh, just so conveniently happening near the Ukrainian border? Is this a PSYOP or does this look like a, parter, like a broader part of Russia's plan to encircle Ukraine militarily? Oh, no, this is part of the planned military operation against Ukraine. I mean, look, they, they declared the exercise actually long after they'd already sent the troops. Everybody saw the Eastern Military District, all four combined arms armies in the district, and uh, the Pacific Fleet's even Naval Infantry Brigade, right? Load up uh, battalion tactical groups and send them west. Uh, rail wagons and flatbeds and whatnot. And their arrival in Belarus, I actually, well, I would say it's not really that surprising. But point being is that this deployment it was covered later on by the announcement of this exercise while they were en route. 
the Russian military had already sent these units well before the first meetings in Geneva, just in case you're wondering whether or not they waited to see the outcome right. of the exploratory talks, or if they loaded all these units because they knew it would be a very long trip from the opposite end of Russia, right, to Belarus. That's literally the entire length of Russia. It's about as far right. as you can go. No, they didn't wait. They had already sent these units. And as it began, they're actually sending more, in case you're curious. There are more units from Central Military District and from Eastern Military District on the way. So this deployment basically creates that thrust of that threat of North and Northwestern access uh, into Ukraine, making potentially the encirclement of Kiev much more viable. Well, it means they don't have to cross the Dnieper River to, to get to Kiev. That's another thing that's been pointed out in a lot of the by, by a lot of analysts. It, it means that they can encircle Kiev from both sides, yes. Right. And and folks who look at the map understand that it's a much shorter distance to get to Kiev from Belarus, right, than it is from other parts of Russia. And it makes defense sort of of Kiev much less viable. It also speaks to, you know, conversations you and I were having over the course of last year when I said that, you know, not only had Belarus shifted tremendously from being a potential party with its own interests or arbitrating between Europe, Russia, and Ukraine, but firmly ensconced in our security orbit, and now moved so far towards, remember when we discussed that Lukashenko said he would not stay neutral in a right. conflict over Ukraine, he clearly signaled the potential for support. He had already before ordered an exercise with Russian forces, a small one, months back. Right. But here now we clearly see that Belarus is going to play an active supporting role. There's going to be it's going to be a material party to the conflict. Even if Belarusian forces are not involved, Belarus actually stores quite a lot of logistics, munitions, things of that nature that could be very relevant to a Russian military operation. And if their territory is used, then then they're a material party to the conflict. So their participation in this is going beyond being a platform at this point, is what you're saying. Well, being a platform in and of itself is being a material party to the war, if you're politically if you're politically willing to do it. But it's likely going to go a bit beyond that. I mean, I personally don't expect Belarusian forces to actually be involved, not that they would significantly add to to the military side of the equation. But yeah, some of that actually remains to be seen. I would say that the February 20th ending date of their exercise is somewhat ominous because it potentially aligns with, you know, Russian preparations in general. <clears throat> Right. Yeah. And I want to talk the timing of this is actually really important. It's a subject of a lot of discussions now, but I want to just for the moment stick on this Belarus piece. But because I'm I'm wondering, does this change this the the equation on the Ukrainian side, the Western side? I mean, it's been written that now that Ukraine's gonna have to spread out forces and stretch forces. They don't have a, a lot to spread and stretch at the moment anyway. From the West perspective, how does this change the way we look at this conflict is belarus being being a party to the conflict is that should that change any uh, the way we're looking at this from western capitals i mean i think what it changes is that there were some people out there who believed that the russian military incursion would be small and they had these various notions that maybe they take the donbass or maybe there's some land bridge to crimea and you know i've always been very dismissive of these yeah yeah i know water on them right you know but okay if you think this is going to be small, you really need to look at Russian force posture from Crimea across um, uh, Ukraine's northwestern borders in you know, all the way into Belarus and all the way as far west in Belarus as Brest, right, where Russia right. is deployed into. Okay, So it's really going to be not just a large-scale military operation, but a military operation that was very likely going to be west of the river and west of Kiev. And that begins to paint to you a very different scope of the operation. You're starting to see Russian force posture 
really dictate to you a, a much more narrow set of potential military scenarios. Assuming that this is not a feint, and I would say it, it actually is a reasonable assumption that it's not that these deployments are not. Yeah. Yeah, no, I want I, I want to jump in. Well, this I want to kind of go back to our last conversation where you where you seem to think the most likely scenario would be a Russian push to take left bank Ukraine, to take all of Ukraine east of the Dnieper River. Now this seems to be showing me that they are interested in territory west of the Dnieper River, which will be really hostile territory. There are kind of three pieces to this puzzle. The first is a multi-axis Russian advance to the river, right, essentially encircling a large part of body of Ukrainian forces that are forward deployed in, in the JFO or, or forcing them into a retreat. Another one, which is an advance along the southwestern coast to Odessa, which is a very, very realistic operation, using naval infantry and having the 58th Army basically come out of Crimea heading northwest, right, along that corridor um, towards Kyrgyzstan and then past yeah. that towards, towards Odessa. And then the third is a pincer movement to encircle Kiev, right? One from east, from the eastern side of the river and one from the western side where you see a sizable number of Russian battalion tactical groups in Belarus, right? And, and this would not likely go in phase. It would actually very likely happen all at the same time. Uh-huh. So we are talking about action west of the Dnieper River, and that's different now. This is a qualitative difference. I also wanted to follow up in our previous discussions when you said the, the nature of the Russian troop deployments make it look like an invasion was very likely. And I've I've been having a lot of, as you have, conversations with a lot of different people that follow these events really closely. And there is there's a contingent out there that just think this is a big feint. I had dinner last night with our, our mutual friend, Peter Pomerantsev, who mm-hmm. seems to be thinking along those lines. I had dinner not long ago with Vladimir Milov, the, the Russian opposition leader. And a lot of Russian liberals don't think that, that, that Putin's going to invade. They think that this is a psyop, this is, a, this, this, this is just a feint. Is, in the intervening month that we, since we've talked on this podcast, have you seen anything that has changed your opinion that an invasion is is very likely? Because I'm pretty much with you. I think an invasion is likely. But have you seen anything that's strengthened that opinion, weakened that opinion? I'm just curious. Why, it seems there is – and it's a lot of Russians who do seem to think this isn't going to happen. Are they just in denial? My short answer is yes. I personally hope that they're right. So do I. Wrong. <laughs> But I will tell you that I think the most likely outcome is that I'm right and that they're in denial and that they have a gross misunderstanding of two factors. First, Russian actual military capability, and second, political resolve to go through with something like this and, and to take on board all the risks and potential consequences of it, right? And, and I've heard a lot of sort of hand-waving about you know, this is not characteristic for Putin. He'd be risking himself yes. and the regime and this and that and the other. And and I don't agree with some of those views. I, I would only agree on one point, which is that this is, of course, going to be by far the biggest gambit he's ever launched yeah. in his time ruling Russia. However, if this sounds nuts to you and you're listening to this, imagine in 2013, I told you a story. Then in early 2014, Russia would seize Crimea and annex it from Ukraine, then at the same time invade Ukraine's eastern regions and occupy half of the Donbass. And then the year after that, they would conduct another offensive in Ukraine, and then they would deploy and conduct an expeditionary military operation in Syria. And I told you all this whole story over drinking, right? 
And I would have said you had too much to drink. Yeah, you probably <laughs> love to be Brian, so you know Mike's usually... Mike, 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 Mike smoking something. This sounds a little wild. And you were telling me this is uncharacteristic for Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. Seize the largest case of territorial revisionism in Europe post-World War II. He's going to annex Crimea, invade Ukraine. He's going to send forces into the Middle East. Sounds wild. Well, you know, here we are. So let's let's have a conversation and be analytically humble about the real the possibilities. No, I, I'm with you. But I mean, just to, to kind of give the not to straw man the uh, opposing argument. I mean, the argument usually goes something like this, that Putin loves like right? manual control. He likes to have everything under contr his control. He, ca he carefully plans out every stage of every operation, every political operation. Everything is, 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 is he leaves very little to chance. Usually this is not the Putin is risk averse argument, which I don't buy. This is a different argument that Putin is – he very carefully plans out this operation. And even with Crimea, if he wanted to do it and decided he had the political will to do it, that operation, it, it, the, the end result is going to be pretty predictable, right? You, that, that, that was not going to – they were not going to run into any serious – so there was, there was very little risk of the military part of that operation not going well. Donbass is a little bit of a different story. I think they miscalculated there about the nature of that part of Ukraine. Um, this is something of an entirely different magnitude. This is larging, launching what I think, correct me if I'm wrong, would be the largest military operation in Europe since the Second World War. It's, it's up there. Well, I, I would definitely say since 1968. Okay, if we don't include 56 and 68, it's probably fair. And it's definitely the, even if it's not the largest military operation, it will definitely be the largest conventional military conflict in Europe uh, yeah. since World War II. Yeah. And, you know, I don't want to dismiss kind of the Balkan, the Balkan wars, session, but, but nonetheless, this is going to be, as a conventional military showdown, this will be that the largest conflict. And there's a lot of unpredictable parts of this, right? There's a lot of moving parts in this. And right. that Putin's not going to be able to control. And the argument of those that are saying he's not going to do this is is that that he's not going to he, he's not a risk taker in that way. Now I don't believe this argument. I think there are certain things that are so important to Putin, and this specifically strategic depth on his western flank, or what he considers to be strategic depth mm -hmm. in his western flank, that these things are worth risking. And he sees Ukraine slipping away. But does the argument that he's not a risk taker in this way, where he cannot control the outcome? How would you answer that? I, I don't think that's true. I think he has always been a risk calculating leader. He's always been willing to take much higher risk to avert losses than than to necessarily pursue gains. I think it is true that historically he has always made sure that he's got several outs. And that may still be true, and we're just not seeing it. That is, he imagines that worst case scenario, if if the military operation doesn't go well or if the reaction is not what he anticipates then he'll get some ceasefire agreement to withdraw and Europeans will come running to him begging for any deal to stop this. And he'll still be able to sign some kind of Minsk III and, and attain at least some minimalist gains. I don't know. So I would say that in terms of gambits, the Russia-Georgia war was a tremendous gambit. It was a maximalist gambit, gambit that was involving the entire territory of Georgia. And I had one journalist telling me, you know, but, you know, look, that only lasted five days. And I said, yeah, but Putin didn't know that. You... A lot of contingent in war, a tremendous amount of contingent in war, right? It's very difficult to see beyond the first operational move how things will play out. Right. There's much depends on what your opponent chooses to do, all right? There are a lot of assumptions that get disproven once conflict begins. 
and there's a fair prospect for chance in war as well. War is a messy and ugly business. It is not a precise machine business. Right. It's very hard to know what to anticipate. All things being equal, yes, Russia has tremendous quantitative and qualitative superiority over Ukraine and is much better positioned to launch this conflict. But you bet there's a lot of risk in this. And I I, I will tell you now, just kind of from kind of sitting from my perch, I will make you a very safe bet that the Russian general staff is not supportive of this operation because of the amount of contingency involved in it. This is definitely this is definitely going to be a political leadership decision and it's going to be Putin's war. And it's not going to be, you know, sometimes people say like the hard men in the Kremlin support these things. And that's how you immediately know they have no experience working with the military. Right. Professional right. military people never support a large-scale military operation whose outcome is uncertain and, and may result in a prolonged occupation. That's rarely the military's vote. Right. No. And you brought up Georgia, Michael. And I would add that, I mean, in a lot of ways, Russia got lucky in Georgia because the Russian armed forces did not perform very well in Georgia. The only thing that saved them is that the Georgian armed forces performed even worse but if you had a, a prepared Georgian armed forces at that time that, that performed well, and I don't know if that's on the Georgian military or on the political leadership, but the, 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 Russian, the Russians performed really subpar. And the only thing that saved them was the Georgians performed even worse, right? So they may have dodged a bullet there. The other thing I would note that tells me that this is happening is that Russia's evacuated embassy staff and families, which tells you something unless you really want to believe they're they're taking the psyop to ridiculous lengths it's not a psyop all the indicators that you would look to see show that this is very much for real and mm-hmm. let's put it this way i don't think it's imminent in a sense of days we are well past the period of strategic warning for a military operation the next kind of indicators will all be tactical right that is we are potentially weeks away from it and I've seen some skeptical folks out there, particularly the people that don't do military analysis or, or IR in general, I kind of do MIDI media analysis. They kind of look at this from the straw of what's happening in the Russian media, and they say, well, there's a lot of disinformation towards Ukraine and the Russian media, so we're not seeing these things. And I'm definitely yeah. puzzled by that narrative because to me, it's almost largely irrelevant, and it's generalizing from the single case of 2014. It's not even kind of fighting the last war. It's fighting three wars ago, because I could Brian, I could easily tell you there was no Russian public support for an intervention in Syria or for a winter offensive in 2015, okay? Mm-hmm. Not, none of this, and there was no great effort to manufacture it. Russian, um, if, if uh, Maria Sinkovai, our good dear friend, was on the show, uh, she would tell you that uh, Russian public was 60% opposed to any intervention in the Middle East prior to the Russian deployment yeah, in Syria, and after the deployment in Syria was 60% in favor of it. So the table completely flipped, and nobody manufactured uh, Russian, you know, Russian public approval prior to the intervention. So my, my analogy to you, which is imperfect, and to those listening who are saying, I'm not seeing some of these other signs I expect to see, it's very simple. Imagine that you see a truck coming at you, but you don't hear it yet. Which of those two senses are you going to trust and take your decision off of? The fact that you see the truck coming directly at coming directly at you, or the fact that you don't hear it. And if you don't hear it, are you going to say, "I think everything's fine. I don't need to move." Right. So, this is how you should kind of weigh, as I say, when you're looking at your indicators, which of the ones you should privilege, right? Which ones have much more analytical rigor behind them, and which ones tell you the much more likely story of right. what you're witnessing? Yeah, you know, as opposed right. to. 
I'm watching uh, Channel One Sunday night, and they're not saying bad things about Ukraine. So and they are not. I've been I've been monitoring that, and they are not. And that's 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 interesting um, in, in in a lot of ways. But I don't I don't think that that's not a sign to me that they're not going to do this. I, I, I they're just doing it differently. Yeah, but they right, but they know you're watching as an indicator and a warning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so why would they why would they clearly indicate? Through, through state media that they are planning a large-scale military offensive in Ukraine until pretty late in the game if they know that everybody's watching that as an indicator and warning. <laughs> right, right, right. No, and I'm also, something I've been watching is the, 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 the U.S. rhetoric on this, and the U.S. actions on this, which also have been very interesting. And President Biden in his press conference yesterday pretty much predicted that an invasion is going to happen, which is interesting. The rhetoric coming out of the administration seems to be that this is happening, which is interesting. You and I in the past have been lamenting on this program and off mic in private conversations that Russia wasn't getting enough attention from this administration. Well, guess what? It's getting attention now. And as we are recording this podcast, right, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is in Europe. He met with uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky on Tuesday. He's meeting with German officials today, and he's due to meet Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov tomorrow, Friday. That will be uh, the day people are actually listening to this podcast. So as this, people are listening to it, Lavrov and, uh, and, and Blinken will actually be meeting. Now, the Russian demand that NATO not, to en- not enlarge uh, to the east was obviously, and in my opinion correctly, dismissed out of hand by both the U.S. and NATO. But now that Putin has made this ultimatum, can he not invade without losing face? I mean, that's another thing. I mean, it's a two-pronged question. What do you make of the U.S. rhetoric on this? What do you make of President Biden and other officials pretty much talking about an invasion almost like it's a fait accompli already before it's happened? Is Is the U.S. playing some messaging game here? And then on the Russian side, having made this ultimatum, this implicit ultimatum that's more explicit than implicit in a lot of ways. Can Russia, can, can Putin not invade without without losing face now? Let me tackle that. It's got three questions. So the first on, on the signaling from our side, I think it sounds like we're very pessimistic and we're increasingly resigned to the fact that it's going to happen, which I'll say it's good that we're being realistic about the situation, unlike what sounds like Ukrainian political leadership, because if you're watching some of the statements coming out of Kiev, it sounds like they're living in alternate reality. You know, Russia wanting attention to Russia. The only thing I will say is, as Oscar Wilde said long ago, there are two great tragedies in life. The first one's not getting what you want, and the second one is getting it. So, <laughs> so here we are, and we're, we're, we're about to suffer from the second tragedy in life, which is getting everything we wish for, but not, not the way we had imagined it. Right. Um, we wanted to get, we wanted the attention to stop yeah. something like this before it right. this. Yeah. Right. Absolutely, absolutely. We wanted the prioritization of Russia, so it would be an earnest treatment of the Russia problem set, seeing it as a persistent adversary and understanding that Europe's European security is very much unfinished business for the United States, and we can't just run off looking at Asia Pacific and focusing on China, leaving this thing, basically, or assuming that we can part the relationship with Russia on the cheap. Like, it's very clearly, you know— all- is, that, is that, just stick, to stick with this for a moment, is that dead? Is that belief that we could park the Russian thing on the cheap, is that dead in policymaking circles from where you sit? I mean, I'm certain that's dead, but we're still going to prioritize China. So there's there's going to be big questions to be asked of, you know, how do we find the right balance between the primary theater, which is Asia Pacific, and Europe, which is the secondary theater. But thankfully, I think that we're going to hear a lot less about 
you know, Russia's uh, precipitous decline or the right. notion that, that we can just use the strategic stability dialogue to make the relationship predictable. I kind of, you know, I've commented that. We did ask the question, uh, fairly, I think correctly, what would it take to make this relationship more predictable? And Moscow told us what the price was. And we don't like the price. We said, this price is absurd. This is an absurd yeah. ridiculous price, right? Yeah. Okay, but in fairness, we did ask. <laughs> okay, we, we did ask what it is. And we asked while signaling that Europe was a secondary theater and we wanted to deleverage from Europe to focus on China. And so, you know what? The price was always going to be high. Yeah. It yeah. was always going to be high. It was never going to be, hey, how about some, uh, you know, regional arms control and strategic arms control and a couple uh, de-escalatory things here on the margin. That was never going to be it. People who thought that was going to be it were definitely living in a deeply optimistic world because the price was always going to be high. My view of it is that Russian demands, the three main security guarantees demands that they've issued are, are almost destined to, these proposals were basically destined to failure and they knew they were non-starters for us. That's, they're written as non-starters. I'll be frank, right. Brian. If, if you read that document, right, and by the way, Russia made clear that they're not willing to unbundle the three demands. The three demands are no NATO enlargement, not just to Ukraine, no NATO enlargement, period. Full right. stop, yeah. Yeah, just to be clear, this is like, uh, you know, this involves Finland and other states. It doesn't just say to Ukraine. Although we know that Ukraine's at the center of it. No NATO defense cooperation with non-NATO members like Ukraine, demand two. And demand three is a good kicker. Yeah. Return of NATO to May 1997 in terms of military infrastructure, which is basically a go back to Germany clause, right? That's what it's right. Go back to Germany and get out of the Baltics and Poland clause, right? So when you read this, folks have different impressions of it. Mine's probably a little bit to one side, but I'll be frank that those proposals read as though somebody went to the Russian MFA and asked them to draw two troll proposals to troll the United States and NATO. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, if you no. were to write a document whose purpose was not to be a real basis for negotiations, but just to troll the United States, that's kind of how you would write it and right. in terms of your demand. Right. I right. mean, the fourth demand could have been give us back Alaska, but probably that we've been <laughs> jumping sharp. No, seriously. Like, don't you think that we're just we were a little yeah, bit? Yeah, no, I know. When I was reading it, I had the exact same response. I'm like, they're they're trolling us. Yeah, yeah. It, it almost it almost read that way. And I had a hard time taking it seriously. I had to write about it, and I had a it was difficult because I had such a hard time taking it seriously. Right, but then but then it was clear in the engagement with Yakov that these were the Russian priorities. That they were they were interested in expanded strategic stability dialogue, but that wasn't really deliverable they were looking for, and they weren't willing to unbundle any of these, which immediately tells you about their kind of the room they had to seriously negotiate on the basis of this agenda. So to answer your last question, okay, can Putin not invade? Of course, Putin doesn't have to invade. He can do whatever he wants, and only only he knows ultimately what he's going to do. But at this stage, right after. This game of coercive diplomacy and, and coercive bargaining, all right, he cannot back down without significant internal and external audience costs. And I'm gonna I'm gonna lay out what they are. Mm -hmm. The external audience cost is not just people will say that Russia was bluffing, is that Russia's gonna end up in the worst of both worlds. People will say that Russia was deterred, right? And we and and the worst of both worlds is that Russia will look incredibly aggressive, but also resistible, right? That's where he will end up. That is, he, he, people will say that he was deterred by threat of sanctions and by the provision of additional military equipment to Ukraine, and that he was going to do it, but we stopped him, and it will create a further argument behind, behind right. the application of co coercive instruments. And by the way, it will be a big loss because in the interim, 
you know, we and other countries have sent a number of military supplies and weapons to Ukraine in the midst of all this, right? So that's already kind of a, a, a policy loss in, in the last month or two. But the internal audience costs are significant too, right? And they're principally amongst the elites. They're not amongst the public, right? And folks who think that, yeah, great powers make make demands and they back down, like Khrushchev backed down and over the Berlin, you know, during the Berlin uh, crisis. Yeah, it's not really true. The Cuban um, crisis. Huh? Yeah, yeah, that's not really true. So two things about that. Khrushchev didn't get his demands what he wanted from his ultimatum over the Berlin crisis. The way he backed down is by partitioning Berlin with a physical wall, pursuing a unilateral solution. Right. And that's actually very much the worst case scenario in the cars, looking at what Russia, what Russia might do in Ukraine. But the second more important point is that uh, what happened in that crisis, the Cuban Missile Crisis, had very significant costs for Khrushchev and the Soviet Union. That is your ability to manage elite coalitions, right, the selectorate, is going to dramatically diminish if they believe that you are reckless and incompetent. OK, if you create this kind of crisis and then you back down, having visibly gotten almost nothing, brought the country to the brink of war. Right. And elites, your own elites look at you and are saying, I don't understand what you know, you're in a personalized autocratic system. Right. So people kind of look to one person to try to figure out what's going on. And they say, I don't understand what this person is doing anymore. That's pretty problematic for you. If you think that an autocrat in that kind of system can just do whatever they want, that's not the case. Right. Diplomacy is essentially pointless in this situation. I mean, there is not a diplomatic solution that does not look like Munich or Yalta, which makes me wonder, why is Blinken talking to Lavrov again? What do they hope to – or do they just need to get caught trying? Well, hold on. I hate to disagree, but I don't think diplomacy is pointless. First of all – I was being provocative. I don't know. I know. I, okay. All right. I was like, <laughs> like, Brian, you're like, we're forced to disagree. I thought he was pointless. Right. First of all, it was very important to find out if if there there actually was any possibility of a diplomatic compromise for invasion, and more importantly, if the diplomatic effort was genuine or just kind of a cover story to, to create like a political to, to engage in political theory theater and and create this political background so that Russia could then say that they you know they made these demands but they were refused out of hand. Right. After Geneva, I'll be honest, I walked away from that basically seeing that the United States was unable to determine in the discussion if, if the Russian diplomatic effort was actually genuine. And the representative of the Russian diplomatic effort, Sergei Ryabkov, himself didn't seem to have any idea whether his diplomatic effort was genuine either. That is, we didn't know, and the Russian MFA clearly doesn't know either. If, 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 if the right. Diplomatic, they're there. So my view is that that if if there's no agreement to be made, there's still merit to it, right? Because what we don't want is we don't want Russia to structure the narrative of how this war began and why. We want to be the side that structures the narrative that this is fundamentally a war of choice for Russia, mm-hmm. that the war diplomatic outs. And we want that narrative to be very important with Europeans, because we want Europeans to end up saying, you know, if, if Americans, if you had tried to really engage with Russia bilaterally and their demands, we might have avoided this and so on and so forth, because we're going to need them on side for sanctions and things like that. Right, Brian? Right. So there is merit to it. There is big merit to it in, in if you think about what the response would be to a Russian. But it's not about forestalling the conflict, really. It's about shaping narrative, and it's for the Europeans, basically. Do we, we, like I said, we have to get caught trying. Absolutely. 
And yeah, and, th and there's merits to see what we can do potentially to to uh, to reach a compromise. But my view was from the outset that look, we weren't going to compromise on the three main security guarantee demands that they had, right? And by the way, there's some folks who said, and I'll I'll make a point of disagreeing. There are some colleagues I have that said, look, there's no intention to bring Ukraine into NATO. So why don't we just say that the Bucharest summit declaration in 2008 was a mistake, which people widely agree on. And just say that we don't support Ukrainian membership in NATO at this time. Okay, whatever you think of that argument, the only thing I'll say is that it is very clear if you understand the real kind of the situation of why Russia is doing this, that that would have never been enough. Of course, no, you I, would have I given it. Right. You would have done it. And I, while I don't agree with folks that say, "Well, we shouldn't do it just because Russia wants us to do it," if we want to do it, we should. But the point is that would have been enough to to resolve any of this. That wouldn't have gotten us there. Right. And and, and yes, you have to appreciate that, given what Russian objectives are, at least from my point of view, the demands to, to us and to NATO didn't actually make sense as a way for Russia to get there. If I, and if I, if I could unpack that, the simple reason, look, this Russian desire to not only have a say over Ukraine's strategic orientation, but to have a say over key domestic policies, right? Regional mm -hmm. autonomy, language policy, restore the role of kind of pro-Russian media and elites like Medvedchuk who got arrested, et cetera, et cetera. Second problem, what to do with the Donbass, right? How does the Donbass question get resolved? Third problem, sanctions over implementation of Minsk II. So let me ask you this, how would Russia have solved the impasse over Minsk mm -hmm. and domestic policies and the question of Donbass if we had said yes to three security guarantees that they, that they uh, demanded in those treaties? I have no idea. Because they're actually not related. Uh, right. We say in Maine, you can't get there from here. So like, the, you can very clearly see that if we had said yes to those, it will not answer these fundamental issues. And if you read Putin's statements and essays and Q&As and Medvedev's over the past year, it's very clear that that is a very large part of the problem. Mm. Now you begin to see that something doesn't make sense. The story doesn't make sense, Brian. Why would these guarantees, even if we, even if we whatever universe agreed to them, answer the mail for Russian demands on this side of the equation, and they wouldn't. However, I could tell you a story of how a large-scale Russian military operation, from their point of view, could answer those three questions, that is, annulments to, right, come up with an entire new solution now that addresses the question of the Donbass, and also imposes potentially a settlement on Ukraine that answers the main question of the security guarantees, that is, Ukraine not getting into NATO, right, and no more defense cooperation between Ukraine and NATO members, right? If Russian intention really is regime change or potentially even prolonged occupation, but either way, you could see how a military operation answers some of the core questions on Ukraine and also the questions that you saw in the ultimatum issued to us, but not the other way around. If right, right, no. Those, do you know what I'm saying? It's, it's a, it, not the other way around. If we'd agreed to those, how would that answer Putin's core demands on, uh, on Ukraine and the impasse over Minsk? No, it, it doesn't, which only buttresses your argument that they never had any they, – they knew we were going to reject this out of hand to create the pretext for war, which is something a lot of other people – Stephen Pfeiffer wrote a piece on this make, make, making this argument. I think it was, was, was very compelling. The last thing – before we move into the second half, I, I wanted to the, – the, the, there's a lot of been talk about the timing. Of, of a potential invasion and the possibility that the window could be closing for Russia, the whole debate over mud season, Rasputitsa and all of this. How do you, how do you approach this? I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of talk about this. Is this, is this real? 
is the window closing? Is it, it does does mud season significantly complicate things? No, no. Uh, they're driving the timing of the operation. Most of the equipment they sent was prepositioned without troops, and they're able to keep that deployed and sustained for quite a bit of time. There is, of course, a tremendous effect of seasons on terrain and weather. The conversation on mud is way overly it's just so fixed on this mud question. I have to tell people, seasonal change affects a tremendous amount on terrain and on weather beyond mud, yeah? So everything from ground cover foliage to weather effects to the travel of signals, signals detections, it's very significant for the conduct of an air campaign. Let's say there's a lot of factors that affect. There's a lot more to modern warfare than the question of whether the terrain is frozen or muddy. And, mm-hmm. and the Russian military is perfectly capable of launching an offensive in the spring and in the summer, and it's been doing this throughout centuries. So I'll just say that Yes, it may make some things harder. No, it's not a deal breaker at all for them. I think that all things being equal, yes, it would be operationally easier for them to launch a military offensive in February than maybe in the spring. But either way, it's not a deal breaker and it's going to be a, a political decision, probably much more so than than, a mil- than one that's driven by military requirements. Do you have a time horizon, or what are you expecting to see? I'm going to plead the fifth on that. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. No, because there's also a lot of discussion. Later, they, later at the bar. <laughs> they, they don't want to do it during the Beijing Olympics, which I kind of question that because they did Georgia during the Beijing Olympics. Like, that's not Russian style. That's not Russian style. No, I know. They, they, they did Georgia right as the Beijing Olympics were happening, and they did Ukraine last time. It was right after the Sochi Olympics uh, finished up. So, But are you thinking sooner rather than later? I mean, is it imminent, as, as Biden was suggesting? So local leaders have a different understanding of what the word imminent means from defense analysts, but we use that word differently. I would say that I don't think it's imminent in a sense of days, but I also don't believe it's a question of months. Mm-hmm. Okay. So so I, 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 I am inclined, at least based on what I'm seeing, to, into believing that it's going to be sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. And that we will know one way or another what Russian leadership has decided in the coming weeks. That I very much believe. That is, who's right, who is wrong, whether this is a bluff or not, I think that is going to become eminently apparent in the coming weeks. I don't believe we're going to be debating the subject well into March. Let's put it this way. Okay, that's that, and, that, and that's a good place to shift gears. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and look ahead to what we can expect if Russia does reinvade Ukraine. How far will they go and what a potentially Western-backed insurgency might look like? I'd like to remind you, you're listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Mount Vernon, Virginia on land once owned by George Washington where he's hanging out with his two dogs, Ivan the Koji and Finn the Collie, is military analyst and former U.S. Defense Department official Michael Kaufman, director of Russia Studies Program at CNA Corporation and a fellow at the Kennan Institute. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and tune in. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Привет. 
с новым веком. So according to media reports, the United States is strongly considering backing a Ukrainian insurgency in the event that Russia does go ahead and invade. Michael, what would a guerrilla war with U.S. armed insurgents look like in Ukraine? And what other defense assistance should we expect? What would you advise the U.S. and NATO allies do in the event of an invasion? Uh, those are a lot of hard questions there, Brian. Okay, uh, <laughs> you're a smart guy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, right, a lot obviously depends on what the actual Russian military operation is and how do things settle out politically. Now, if you assume the worst case that Let's say there's a prolonged Russian occupation of Ukraine or a partitioning of Ukraine, which is not outside of the realm of possibility, not at all, actually. Increasingly, I'm, I'm leaning towards the worst I case. Think, I think Putin dreams of a partition of Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Remember the famous map he allegedly gave to Donald Tusk back in 2014 with the, with the, you know, the line down the, down the middle of Ukraine, you get this, I get that. Yeah, well, that's Donald Tusk's story. Don't, don't, yeah. I, I, I suppose, right, I... Uh, uh, I, I don't know if that's a true story, but it's nobody knows. Story. Nobody knows if it, nobody knows if it's a true story, but, but it's too good. It's too uh, good to check. <laughs> the increasingly, increasingly, it is looking like, at least from my point of view, there's a real problem with a compelling operation thesis that some folks have had, which is that if you think it's going to be like a Russia-Georgia war, two things you have to keep in mind. The first was the Russian intent behind the Russia-Georgia war was actually a regime change. They asked for it. They just didn't, you know, march on Belize, but they did expect to get regime change out of it. They got it at the end. They got it then. They ultimately did get it. That's right. But the second more important one is that the problem with just the compelling operation is that there is a commitment problem. There is no way for Russia to enforce compliance. And there's a, clear, a strong view in Moscow that they can get Ukraine to sign whatever agreement they like, but never implement it. And so the next operation is not going to be like 2014, 2015. It will not lead to a Minsk III. It will lead to some sort of enforcement mechanism where I suspect they they will look to occupy parts of Ukraine. So I'm, I'm just skeptical of the people who argue that Russia is going to invade and then 20 minutes later withdraw after signing some deal and just expect everything else to go their way. So with that assumption in hand, the question about guerrilla warfare and insurgency is a challenging one. All right. First, the, the prospects for it, I will say, in Ukraine relative to other countries, just from a terrain perspective, are not great. Your your best environment's an urban environment, right? But Ukraine is not Chechnya, it's not Afghanistan, it's not very well set up for that. Historically, where you've gotten insurgency in Ukraine is in Western Ukraine, but it's pretty clear that that's the one part of Ukraine Russia doesn't tend to occupy. In fact, if anything, they would leave that, they would not touch that part of the territory. So those inclined, right? to an insurgency inclined to leave would actually leave to and, and move to Western Ukraine. Regarding support and arms, yeah, there are tremendous opportunities there for the United States, but also big risks and big questions as to how much Europeans would support that, right? Because, of course, the risk would be instability. The risk would be a fundamental fracturing and destruction of Ukrainian society. Insurgency is a messy and dirty business. I really dislike people Let's put it this way. I really dislike when people use Afghanistan as, as, as an analogy. A terrible one. A terrible. First of all, nobody wants to repeat Afghanistan. Afghanistan is not a success story. I hope folks understand that. Okay. And and that and that the destruction of Afghan society and ensuing civil wars resulting from what happened is should not be looked at as oh, that's a great model. We should replicate that, but in Europe, right? That's, <laughs> that's not please. Please. I, I, I dislike I dislike this writing and I also 
you know, it has that tinge of let's fight Russia to the last Ukrainian. I'm not a big fan of of intellectually where that takes you. So I think the big question is what what can be done uh, that's practical in in supporting potentially Ukrainian resistance and insurgency. And there I look more to, to 20th century history in Europe, right? Mm-hmm. To these kind of models. But the big question is would Europeans agree, right? Or would they be would they be scared by the potential, you know, effects effects of stability? And another question is, it all depends on Ukrainians. You know, look, it's very easy to answer in polls that you're going to fight, especially if you think that's the right answer to make on a poll. Like in a national poll, if somebody says if your country was invaded. And say, would you would you engage in armed resistance? Lots of people will say yes. There's going to be a huge delta between the people who say yes and the people who are actually going to do it. Always, right. always. Nothing easier than saying than saying yes to something on the poll if you think that that's the right answer. It'll depend on Ukrainians, and and also depend on the extent to which they're really willing to sacrifice their way of life. If, for example, to engage in urban warfare. When people use things like Grozny as an example, they have to understand that. Yeah, maybe maybe folks in Ukraine don't want to turn Kharkiv into Gorzny, right? That's these are I, I don't have easy answers here. All I will say is that there is definitely the potential for guerrilla warfare. There's definitely the potential for the United States to make this long and costly for Russian occupation, right? Absolutely. But it will have costs. It will have costs on the fabric of Ukrainian society and, and will have long-term costs to Ukraine as well. What would you advise we do specifically? Like give give them stingers? We're already giving them javelins. What, 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 what could the U.S. do if this comes to pass? Well, from what I saw, we're already ag- uh, agreed to let allies send them stingers. I think that we're currently at the phase of people just flying in different munitions and and supplies to throw everything they can uh, at the military effort ahead of a possible uh, Russian invasion. But probably the best thing to do after this is to set up some concrete programs to begin, you know, to begin training Ukrainians in conducting seriously guerrilla warfare and making this a thought through organized effort. And I just want to be clear, folks, guerrilla warfare and insurgency uh, it's not done by just dumping like missiles into a country and then hoping that you're sort of pollinating a place with weapons and then a survivable insurgency will form there, right? It it needs to be a coherent effort based on external sponsorship where you're training folks, you're organizing them in a particular way. They have leadership. They have an agenda. Their agenda is not just blowing things up. Yeah. Um, in order to be appealing to a populace, you usually have to have a positive agenda, right? Um, and, and things like that. So, so... Th- what I'm saying is that there'll be plenty of time to have that conversation. The right. But I want to disabuse people of the notion that just dumping weapons into Ukraine now will then see the insurgency later. Not necessarily. And we don't even have to do that. If the United States plans external sponsorship down the line, that can be done. Now, I've already seen reports, I don't know how accurate they are, that the, the Ukrainian armed forces are already basically training uh, along these lines and, and, and training civilians and also talk from, from senior officials unattributed that they plan to just open up the arms depots inside Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, definitely, I've definitely heard that. I've seen those statements. It's, it's a contingency they have. I, I'm not seeing the Ukrainian military preparing for success, to be, to be frank. And I'm puzzled. I'm puzzled by some of the things I see in Ukraine. I don't know if it's because parts of the leadership believe that this is genuinely that this is a bluff, uh, or you can't make if, that assumption as a military. No, no, well, military leaders can't, but political leaders can make assumptions on anything. That's the miracle of that's the miracle of political elites. Oh, 
the assumptions that political elites enter conflict with are just phenomenal. The the military certainly can't make that assumption. You know, maybe part of his resignation to the fact that they might not stand much of a chance against an, a military operation of this size. I'm not sure, but they're awful asking questions of what's going on with the reserves, where's the general mobilization call up, you know, all these sort of things. Where is where the other piece of the puzzle that you'd expect to see? And why is Zelensky out there? He's trying to tamp down public panic, but fine, and then investor panic too. But he's also not not treating the subject seriously. You know, he's right. if you heard if you heard Biden's speech yesterday and you heard Zelensky's speech yesterday at the same time, Brian, you would really really wondering. Yeah. If we're on the same planet, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. We're bumping up against the end, but before we wrap it up, I did want to kind of broaden the aperture a little bit and talk about, because I was thinking about this last night. I, mean, I was having a conversation about this last night, about if this happens, we are in a whole new world, effectively. We have been in this post-Cold War integration, interdependent globalization world. And we have operated for those under those assumptions since the end of the Cold War, for a generation now, right? If Russia goes ahead and does this, which we, you and I seem to agree that they most likely are, that means that this, we are suddenly in a different world in a lot of ways. And I use the, the reverse analogy. If you think back to the mid 80s, mid to the late 80s, as change was happening in the Soviet Union and the Cold War was slowly winding down, but yet it took a while for everybody to kind of catch up with that. We were still in this kind of Cold War mindset almost until the very end, right? And again, here, we're in this post-Cold War integrated, interdependent, cooperation, positive sum, post-Cold War environment. And to go back to your metaphor, the truck is barreling right down on us to that we're going into something else. Uh, we're moving beyond that. What does this new world look like to you, militarily? Are we going back to the old divided world of, of, of two camps? What are, we, what are we looking at? I'm going to, Brian, I'm going to make you a counter argument. Okay. I don't think we're in a new world. I think we're in an old world. I think okay. that, I think, I think that what's, what's and, and part of that is because clearly some of us never left that world. Uh, <laughs> and that is. The world of great power competition. Yeah, well, some yeah, some of the powers uh, that do have a say over European security never left that world from the looks of it. If you saw right. the same demands I did, um, right. <laughs> that doesn't doesn't look like everybody left that world. So we sure. moved into this post Cold War world, but the Russians didn't. Well, let's put it this way: Europeans certainly did. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Europeans mentally certainly did. Yeah, uh, Russians definitely did not. I mean, look, here's my view of it. I mean, we, we probably would generally agree on kind of what long-term Russian aims had always been, which is to relitigate the post-Cold War uh, outcome in Europe, Russia's position, European security, return Russia as a system-determining power with a say over security arrangements and security outcomes in Europe, and forcing the United States and Europeans to negotiate these outcomes with itself, and making clear that Russian preferences of security prerogatives supersede the ability of states and neighbors to make their own independent sovereign decisions, right? Where do we end up after this? We end up in very much a divided Europe. We end up in a very much a militarized Europe. We end up with a realization, which has been clear, that the largest military power in Europe, outside of NATO as an alliance, is not a stakeholder in European security architecture or the order whatsoever. That's been pretty clear. But more importantly, is you know, it's 
Uh, we're going to have real debates to what extent Russia is a revisionist power in the former so just in the former Soviet Union, or if it is an expansionist power. That's going to be another intellectual fight where people are going to are, are going to argue over. It will involve a shift in U.S. force posture back to Europe, which is going to be exceedingly difficult because people don't understand we are operating under real material constraints in the United States, and the priority is China, Asia Pacific. Um, Europeans often think that there's some kind of magical bank account you can draw on in terms of U.S. military capability and defense spending, but there isn't. So I, I don't mean to offend European European colleagues and friends, but but it will mean have to mean a change in European investment in European security, okay? Because because the United States going to have a heart, it's not going to have an easy time making these changes of, of in terms of military presence in Europe. Yeah, I think. Well, you remember the old slogan of, of Europe, uh, whole, free, and, free a, and at peace. Yeah, you remember that? Do you remember that? It's quaint. Yeah, yeah I, I miss yeah. it. It was no, it was a good dream. It was a good dream. But yeah, we're not going to be hearing that that anymore. We're we are going to be sadly back into that in that old world, and we're going to be talking about how we 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 were not able, very much, you know, Russia responsible for it, but we were not able to secure the peace after. Right. I mean, just a couple of just to, to drill down just a little bit before we wrap up, you say a divided Europe, where's the line? And a militarized Europe, what does a militarized Europe look like? I mean, are we talking about Finland and Sweden getting into NATO? There's all sorts of other parts of Europe that aren't EU, like Moldova and Georgia. And, you know, where does the, where is the line? Is it Belarus's western border? Is it the Dnieper River? Is it Ukraine's western border? Is it Ukraine's eastern border? How do you see it? I mean, this is all negotiable right now, or not negotiable, but in play, I guess, is a better way of putting it. Yeah, it's definitely Belarus. And then where does the line run through in Ukraine is is a question that we it's, won't know the answer to, but it's it, it, it's definitely going to be a case of Russia imposing its will on Ukraine and, and trying to uh, restore Ukraine as as a buffer, as a forepost. And then a number of countries, as you know, conversations have sort of reignited in Sweden, Finland, obviously, but a number of countries will be looking at this and they will ask themselves, what security guarantees do they have? Where have they fallen on which side of the line, right, in this uh, Europe? And it could lead to, there's going to be a, a tremendous amount of follow-on consequences from it, right? Because you're going to have, you're going to have potential requests for NATO accession from some of these other states. You could have follow-on crises resulting from them. You're going to have some big changes in U.S. force posture as well, probably, probably moving east. Some of Russia's worst concerns about U.S. military infrastructure and presence in Europe are going to be realized, most likely. And I assume they priced those in, but nonetheless. They, they must. They had to. They must. Unless they're, they unless must. they're negligent and, or, or foolish, they've priced those in. Yeah. And then there's huge economic shocks, right, that are likely to come. Because if the United States does some of the worst things that it can do to Russia, and make no mistake, the United States can do some pretty strategic economic that could really affect Russia's Russia's banks. Yeah, and you're not just talking about a SWIFT ban. We're talking about... Oh, no, no, that's all. Can I just say SWIFT and and Nord Stream 2 are all distraction. That's like small potatoes. The United States can unilaterally add major Russian banks to the SDN list, and it would have dramatic effects on the Russian economy. It's not an easy thing to do because physics dictate that any weapon sufficiently powerful enough is going to have collateral damage and effects, right? Right. It will have it will have disruption. It will have effects on global economy. It will have effects on commodity prices and whatnot. So there are consequences to it. It's not an a lot. It's not a thing we can do lightheartedly. 
But that's kind of the implicit threat if you listen right. to what the administration is saying. And we don't need Europeans to agree to it, although we, we probably should make sure we have that yeah. agreement. We can do that unilaterally. We don't need anybody to, the, to agree the, to that. The export restrictions also caught my attention. Shades of COCOM, right? In terms of the export restrictions, they look very much like COCOM-style export restrictions of the Cold War era. So these are things that can do enormous damage as well. Again, I'm assuming the Russians have priced all that into it, so, but but uh, and, and are ready to bear this cost. Uh, they've either priced it in or they've assumed that we will be self-deterred or they've assumed that some of these things they will be able to talk us out of it. And if you're asking how, or what, <laughs> what, if you're asking how will be their plan, um, the only the only thing I can, honestly, the only thing I can come up with is that it depends on what they end up doing militarily. But if they are in a position where they're essentially occupying half, more than half of Ukraine, they will also be in some position of leverage regarding uh, how this ends. And and so folks need to be realistic that we have one position now. To some extent, you know, obviously we're still not sure that Russia's going to do this at the end of the day or that they've decided to do it. But it's going to be a very different conversation if they've actually encircled the Ukrainian capital and are, you know, occupying half of Ukraine's territory. Right. And on that note, we'll wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Mount Vernon, Virginia, on land once owned by George Washington, where he's hanging out with his two dogs, Ivan the Kogi and Finn the Collie, has been military analyst and former U.S. Defense Department official Michael Kaufman, director of the Russian Studies Program at the CNA Corporation and a fellow at the Kennan Institute. Michael, thanks as always for an enlightening, albeit a bit depressing, discussion. Yeah, sorry, we're pessimistic, almost bordering on fatalistic, but thanks for having me back on. on yeah, no, th th thanks for coming on. It's always great to have you. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Zachary Smith handles our all-important post-production duties, making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life and cleaning up all of my many messes. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review because that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.